0: Candle of Christ, Advent, which is Latin for arrival or coming, is a season in which we reflect and celebrate on the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout this season, we light candles on the Advent wreath, with each candle representing a different aspect of the importance of Jesus' birth. Though we look back on the first Advent, we also look forward to the second Advent, when Christ will come again, not as a child, but as a conquering King. Four weeks ago, we lit the candle of joy. We rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ came not just as an infant,
1: but as our Savior. Three weeks ago, we lit the candle of fulfillment.
0: Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promised redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Two weeks ago, we lit the candle of peace. Jesus is the one who reconciled us to God last week. Last week, we lit the candle of light. Christ came as the true light to reveal that which was hidden in darkness. Go. Okay. Tonight we light the candle of Christ, the Christ candle. The word Christos means anointed, closely translated to the Hebrew Messiah. We gather here tonight not to, not to celebrate just any birth. We are here to, here to celebrate Jesus, the Christ the anointed king of kings and lord of lords, who at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah seven fourteen. Our New Testament reading and our scripture reading for this evening. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, obedient to the point of death, even, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestow on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that his coming makes hope, peace, joy, and love possible for every person in every nation. Jesus, through your birth, life, death, and resurrection, you have reconciled us to the Father. We pray for the power and courage to do our part to share the good news and to bring goodwill and peace to our families, our communities, and our world. Holy Spirit, dwell within our hearts and help us to know and love the living God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are
1: finishing up this evening what we started a little over four weeks ago, back on November 30th, um, an Advent series called the Canticles of Christmas. The Advent series was taken from the Latin canticle, meaning hymn or song, found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapters 1 and 2. We saw four of them. First was the Magnificat. The song or the hymn of Mary as she sings this joyful expression and worship of her God and Savior. The second canticle of the song was called the canticle of Zechariah, the father, the dad of John the Baptist. Called the Benedictus where he praises God and he, and he blesses God. And he sees this baby Jesus as the coming of the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to David and to Abraham. The Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. Jesus is that fulfillment. And he sings. The third canticle found in the uh, gospel according to Luke chapter 2 is the, the song of the hymn of the angels. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. They sing because they recognize this, this very first Christmas day. The one who lay in the manger was, was the prince of peace. They sang about peace. They sang about the reality that Jesus is the only way to reconcile, to to bring peace between a holy, righteous, good, loving God and sinful man. The fourth song that we looked at last Sunday was a song of Simeon, called the Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin for now you dismiss. Simeon was promised by God, before you leave this planet, you will see the Lord's Christ, you will see the Messiah, you will see the Deliverer, the Savior of the world. At just 40 days old, baby Jesus in his arms, And he says, Lord, now I am ready to depart, for I have seen your salvation. He is the glory of Israel. He is the light to the Gentiles. And now tonight, we look at the canticle of Christ, a hymn or a song, not like the modern songs and and hymns that we sing as a congregation. This is more of a creed, more of a, a doxology, a short worship of the one true God, a short praise for what God has done and who God is. In Philippians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If it gets warm, the windows are open, you can crank them up. It's nice and warm outside. It might get warm uh, in here. Be free to do that. So we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, this song of praise, this doxology doxology of worship. Peter O'Brien, in an excellent commentary in Philippians, says this about Philippians chapter 2. Thank you, brother. Yeah, fighting the cold. Thank you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. He says this in his commentary. This magnificent passage is an early Christian hymn in honor of Christ. It is the most important section of the letter to the Philippians and provides a marvelous description of Christ's self-humbling in his incarnation and death together with his subsequent exaltation by God to the place of highest honor. That's a great summary of Philippians chapter 2, our verse today. This account that we find in Philippians, the letter to Philippians chapter 2, is not like the other Christmas readings that we hear. Beautiful readings today that we heard and about Mary and Joseph. Kind of, kind of the readings that kind of tell us what's going on on the ground, on what Mary and Joseph were hearing, even when the angels showed up, kind of talked about who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, it's sort of like, Paul gets a glimpse, Paul gets the opportunity for this cosmic curtain to just roll away in the sky. And we get a glimpse, an eternal glimpse, of what the true meaning of Christmas is really about. In one word, it's the incarnation. Latin verb meaning to be made, flesh, or to be clothed in flesh, flesh. In Christendom, it means the gracious, voluntary act of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, Taking on humanity. Let's look at that passage briefly tonight. We're going to see the cancel of Christ under three headings. The first one is the eternal Christ. The second one, the earthward Christ on his way down to earth, and then the exalted Christ. So follow along with me. Philippians chapter two, verse six. Actually, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours excuse me, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, see that who, it's a relative now pointing back to, to the subject, who is Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Apostle Paul's getting ready to school the Philippian church. He's getting ready to tell him, listen, this is what your attitude must be. This is what your mindset should be. This is how you should act toward one another, not selfishly, but in humility. And the greatest example in the person he points to is Jesus. And here he begins with the preexistence of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Now, the phrase in our passage, though he was, if you have an ESV, if you have a New American Standard, it's existed. If you have an NIV, being in the form of God. That word being is very important, it indicates it, it points to, it represents the very essence of a being, the very essence, the very innate essence of someone, human being, okay, it it is, is, all of us share a lot of characteristics, amen, like we all breathe, we have hearts, we have, you know, we may look differently, but we all share the innate character, that unchangeable character, no one's turning into a, a frog at midnight, I hope, okay, we hope not. So that's what a being is. We share the same humanness, functioning. We all share that. And here, Paul's rolling back this cosmic curtain. Before baby Jesus is born, likely in, in a cave, and he tells us right up front that Jesus existed, his being. He was in the form of God. He is everlasting to everlasting in the form of God. The word form is not the outward shape of something, but the outward expression of an intrinsic nature. It's that which comes out from within and showing itself. Very important word. It's not the outward caricature. It's the intrinsic inward nature. Let me break it down for you. Let me explain that to you. One of the greatest Yankees of all time, (laughs) Derek Jeter. We could argue about that later. I think he is, at least in the top eight. Maybe six. But anyway, Derek Jeter, when he was playing shortstop, I miss him already, the ball would be hit many times to the left side of the field. You know, if you know, watch baseball, you know Derek Jeter. He's moving quickly to his right, doing a little side grab, and up he would jump, spin around, right? You guys watch baseball? And throw the ball and get the guy out in first base. It was just classic, classic. Great shortstop, great move. What finesse, what, you know, what, 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 Great form, what, what ability, he had balance, he had poise. All right, so think of a figure skater. They have form. And when you use that word form about skating or about baseball, you're not talking about the outward character. You're talking about that intrinsic nature, that, that expression of the in, ability inwardly to show itself. That's that word, morphe, uh, form. So Paul looks at this pre Christian story before the manger, before the virgin birth, and he says Jesus is in the form, the very nature, the very innate, unchangeable person of God. That's what he's saying. It's, un, it's unescapable in the Greek. He is then unalterable, unchangeable, God in his essence, in his essential being. That's really important. It should be no surprise, Jesus said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, and they tried to kill him. They knew exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus meant I always was and I always will be eternal. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. God incarnate. One of the interesting passages of Scripture in James chapter 2, James, the Lord's half-brother, says something very important. James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brothers, he's talking to a group of uh, brothers in Christ, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Lord of glory. Who is the Lord of glory. Let me tell you something. No Jew in his right mind would call Jesus the Lord of glory. No Jew in his right mind would take the word Lord of glory and Jesus and use them interchangeably if not for the presence, the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus is and always will be God. Look what it it says. Not only is he the eternal Christ, but he is the earthward Christ. Jesus started in a place with the Father, a place that we cannot even begin to fathom, beyond our wildest dreams. And look what happened at Christmas. It says that although he was in the very nature, the very being, the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is saying that even though Christ already existed as God, He is equal. He did not resolve. He did not cling to. He did not hold to. Why? There was nothing for him to grasp. He would never cease to be God. For him, equality equality with God was not something he needed because he was already God by nature. John MacArthur writes this, though Christ had all the rights, privileges, and honor of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, His attitude was not to cling to those things or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season. Now, I want you to watch this. It was not the possession of his deity that he released. It was the expression of his deity. His eternal nature did not change, but the expression of it changed drastically. Look what it says. He was in the form of God, didn't hold, didn't grasp to it. Verse seven, but made himself nothing. See that? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. He did not give up his deity, but he did abandon that position with the Father. Christ, Christmas, listen, Christmas is all about Jesus, earthward descent from heaven, coming down to this dirty, this broken, this rebellious world called earth. I don't understand it all. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I understand completely this passage. It's far beyond our understanding. That's why it's called a miracle. Okay, that's why it's called a miracle. But make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself, some versions have. He didn't empty himself of his deity, as some people would say. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons will tell you, he emptied himself. He was not God. That's not true. Right? If he ceased being God from verse 6... If God ceases to be, he's no longer God because God's eternal. God can't cease to be. You're like, this is Christmas Eve, man. I can't get all that. But, all right. <laughs> if, if, if Jesus ceased being God, he would simply cease to be. For God, who is eternal, cannot cease. Do you understand that? So verse 6 and verse 7, he does not empty. What he does is, what what Christ is doing here, is he takes on humanity. That's the important thing we see. We see God, who is co-eternal with the Father, Jesus, who is co-eternal with the Father, taking on humanity in Christmas. That's what the incarnation is all about. Fully God and fully man. He did not cease being God, but he emptied himself because he took on humanity. Paul is saying, listen, he stepped out of glory. He set aside some of his, his, his divine attributes voluntarily in his incarnation. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. Let me tell you something. The Bible's clear, crystal clear. While on earth, Jesus was worshipped as God and received worship as only God would. He declared himself to be God. He forgave sins. Only Jesus can forgive sins. But, because God is Immutable, unchanging, Jesus set aside voluntarily and began. The Bible says that he grew in stature and in favor with man. Jesus, in his eternal state, unknowing, is all-knowing, is omniscient. But you know what? He had to learn to read like all the other Jewish boys. Jesus Christ humbly lived a full human life while still being God. He had the right of being worshipped, and he did. Still having all the attributes, but humble himself, chosen voluntarily for you and for me to live like us yet without one single blemish without one single sin mind blowing let me illustrate that for you let's try football let's say your team has the greatest quarterback some of you are thinking what team I'm talking about it's not the team you think but let's say your team has the greatest quarterback in the world everyone knows he's the greatest quarterback There's no doubt about it. The whole world knows the greatest quarterback makes every single pass. He's perfect at all he does. He is absolutely wonderful quarterback, but he has a a lousy offensive line. Now you know what I'm talking about. How good is that quarterback going to be when he's on his back being sacked on every single play? Not very good. Jesus, perfect God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father takes on humanity. The fastest runner in the world alongside someone doing a two-legged race, he took on humanity. He limited himself. He voluntarily stepped down from the riches and the glory and set aside that glory and became a man yet always existed as God. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself. By being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What it says, he he was found in human form. He really was human. That word form is a different Greek word. It's schema, which means outwardly changing. Jesus came into the world doing what children do. He came through the womb of his mom. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes like other babies. He had brothers and sisters like other children. He learned to trade. He learned to work. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. He was sleepy. He was hated. He was loved. He was angry, and he was greedy. he had pain and he had rejection. He had a certain height, a certain eye color, he had certain characteristics. He went to Jewish parties, celebrated and drank the Jewish drinks and, and was born of a Jewish mother. He, that halo, that gold thing that you see the pictures of, that's not accurate. Okay? We can't completely understand, but we know he left his glory. He left his position, he became a servant, he became like one of us, and yet he was spotless and sinless. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said this, God became man, the divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality the more you think about it the more staggering it gets nothing in fiction is so fantastic as in this truth of the incarnation try to wrap your head around that this christmas season you know that song that sings you know, uh, uh, the cow the lowering uh, the poor baby sleep no no cry he makes he was crying poor babies cry right that's not sinful he humbled himself but look not only became a, a, a man a servant But he served, but look, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The sovereign Lord becomes a suffering servant, totally submissive, as a slave, as a servant, and then he's a sacrifice. Notice this passage, though, which I've, I've preached this before, but I never really noticed this before. But notice what this passage says. Jesus was not only obedient in the death in which he died, he went to the cross in obedience to the Father. It says that, but Paul says that he was obedient to the point of death, indicating that all of Jesus' life, all of Jesus' ministry, all of Jesus' entire existence was in obedience to the Father and culminated on the cross. That's what that's saying. That's very important. If Christ was not perfect in complete obedience to the Father... If Christ was not without sin, then his death on the cross and the payment for that sin would be his own. In a way, the wages of sin is death. That's payment. But because Jesus was both God and sinless man, his sinless life, his substitutionary death is able to pay the price for our redemption. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which is Adam, and death through that sin came, death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For if many die through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the gift, the free gift, by the grace of the one perfect man, Jesus, abound for many. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin, that's your sin, that's my sin, so one act of righteousness, the perfect life, leads to justification, leads to being made right with the Father. That's Jesus, the eternal God who took on flesh, the one who lived the perfect life, the one who willingly went to the cross. He embraced the painful and shameful, cursed, humiliation, death on a Roman cross. He stepped out and descended, the eternal God, became a man, became a servant, obedient to the Father, even death on a cross. Hebrews 10 says, Christ had offered for us a single sacrifice for sin, and then he sat down on the right hand of God. Augustine, the church father, said this, the maker of man became man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he the fountain might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, security, might be wounded, and that he, the very life itself, might die. He is the eternal Christ who stepped out of glory, left his position, and stepped into humanity, fully God, fully man. But then look what happened. The Father didn't leave him there. Look at the exalted Christ. When Jesus stepped back into heaven, after he humbled himself... After dying on the cross, after going into that cold tomb, after rising from the dead three days later, after ascending to the Father in his glorification, he went back to the Father, and the Father said, Son, come up, over here, stand, sit, be exalted. This is what you have done, and this is the place in which you will stand. Alec Mortyer, is a British scholar, He said, he was not grasping onto his glory. He was not defensive in his relation to his deity. He was not protective in his uniqueness of his human experience. He emptied himself. He humbled himself from the brightness of his glory to the dust of the earth, from the place of heaven to the lowliest identification of our common clay. By Jesus' own humbling and decision, he showed both his obedience and love to the utmost and the father loves to see it for it is the principle with god that he who hums himself shall be exalted amen Amen. three things three things quickly one this passage teaches us he is the reigning lord He is the reigning Lord, verse 9. God has highly exalted and bestowed upon him in his deceleration from earth, exaltation back to heaven. He has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Highly exalted means super exalted. He's super exalted. Not any name, not even a name. It is the name. It is the title. The God-man's new rank, his dignity, reigning ruler of the universe. Given to our Lord. Number two, he is not only the reigning Lord, he's the ruling Lord. Look at verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So listen, those in heaven, those in heaven will hit the ground before his glory, before his majesty, which includes angels and the believers and everyone who died before us, and they will bow their knee and worship Jesus. That's what it says in heaven. On earth, the skeptics, the agnostics, the atheists, whoever you are and you're not a believer of Jesus Christ, one day you will bow your knee Everyone will bow, from Stalin to Hitler to Bin Laden. Every knee will bow before Jesus and acknowledge him as Savior, Lord, reigning ruler of the universe. That's what God has said, and that will happen. I tell you, it's much, much, it will go much greater for you to bow your knee and worship him as your Savior than to be forced to bow your knee and worship Him as your judge. He is the reigning Lord. He is the ruling Lord. And look what it says. He is the righteous Lord. Verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The profession of His name is Lord and the purpose is the exaltation of the glory of God. The glory of God. Listen. The purpose of Christ stepping out, humiliation and exaltation Is for the glory of God. What that means is the cross, the work of the cross, the glory of God is to show forth to the world. Listen, the glory of God in the cross is to show forth to the world his incalculable worth, his intrinsic beauty, his majestic greatness over the world. And Jesus, eternal being made flesh to the point of crucifixion, to the point of exaltation, is for us to fall on our knees and worship. Worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How great and majestic and treasurable he is. That's the point of Christmas. Jesus, John 17, a high priestly prayer. Getting ready to go to the cross. His Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me. Glorify me, Father, Jesus is saying. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, friends and family, That's what Christmas is all about. I feel like every year we got to just kind of bring everybody back to the reality of Christ, to the reality that God the Father sent God the Son into the world, stepped out of eternity into humanity, into that stable, became a man, lived the perfect life, died an atoning death, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell, and calling up people everywhere to worship him, to trust him, to turn from their sins, and to worship him and him alone. I want to end tonight with a story. Many of you heard a man named Paul Harvey. He told this story, and I want to share it with you. The band can come up. Everybody else, just give me two more minutes. Listen to this story. He says, he's a radio announcer. He says, now the man to whom I'm going to introduce you to is not a Scrooge. He's a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealing with men, but he just didn't believe all the incarnation stuff which all the churches proclaim proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was just too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the story about Jesus coming to earth as a man, God becoming man. He says, I'm truly sorry to distress you, he tells his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He says, I feel like a hypocrite, I'm just going to stay home. You go, I'll wait up for you. So they left. She bundled up her children and they went to the midnight service. Shortly, a- shortly after the family had left and drove away, snow began to fall. He went to the window. He saw lots of flurries and all of a sudden it got heavier and heavier. So he, he went back to his fireside chair and had the fire going. He opened up his newspaper and began to read. Minutes later, he heard, thud, thud, thud. Again, thud, thud, thud on the window. So he went to the door, he opened up the door to look out to investigate, and he found this flock of birds huddling miserably in the snow. They got caught up in the snow, in the storm that had come, and they were searching for shelter. and they kept banging into his landscape window. Well, he couldn't let them just lay there and freeze. And he remembered, you know what, if I can get them in the barn, let me put the light on in the barn where the pony is. It's warm in there, and there they could find a place to go. So he puts his shoes on, his galoshes on, and he goes out into the, to the barn, opens the door, turns the lights on. He figured, you know what, it would entice them. They would see light and they would go in, but they didn't go in. So he got some breadcrumbs and he put some breadcrumbs out and he tried to shoo the birds in with the breadcrumbs and laying, and no matter what he does, he won't go near them. The birds won't go near him. And he's thinking, you know what, they're they're scared of me. They're afraid of me. I'm just too terrifying of a creature, he says. If only if I could let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but I'm trying to help them. But how could I do that? They were confused and they were frightened, these birds. They just wouldn't allow it, no matter what he did. No matter how much shooing he did, he could not put the birds into the barn. For that moment, he realized that it just won't follow another human. He said, how can I possibly save them? The only way would be for me to become like these geese. If only I could become like one of them. Then I could show them the way. Then I could save them. Then they will follow me and not fear me. They would trust me and I would lead them safely. He stood silently for a moment. As the words that he just said reverberated back to his mind, if only I could become like one of them, then I could show them the way, then I could save them. He thought about his words and remembered what his wife had said to him. Why would God want to be like us, he said. That's so ridiculous. Something clicked in his mind as he put these two things together. It was like a revelation. He began to understand what his wife had been trying to explain to him about the true meaning of Christmas. We are like the geese caught in the storms of life and we are perishing. God became like us so he could rescue us. That is the meaning of Christmas. He realized in his heart as the wind and the the blinding snow abated, his heart became quiet and he pondered what had taken place. He understood what Christmas was all about. He knew why Jesus had come. Suddenly years of doubt and disbelief were shattered as he humbly and tearfully bowed down in the snow and embraced the true meaning of Christmas. End of story. Listen as we get ready to sing. Jesus Christ is the immeasurable value and infinite glory and perfection of God who came down to this broken, twisted, jacked up world and then went to the cross and paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. That's what Jesus, the baby boy wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, has done in love for you and for me. This Christmas, embrace the true meaning the one true God, by turning from your sins, trusting in Christ. The God-man who is eternal, descended, became a man, became a servant, went to the cross, and now is exalted. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. My question for you tonight is very simple. Will you bow your knee voluntarily to him? Receive forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. I pray you will today. Let's bow our head. Father, thank you for this glorious revelation you've given to the Apostle Paul. Thank you as we get a glimpse of all that Jesus did for us in love because he loves us, because you love us, that you sent your son to the world in a jacked up, broken place to live, to, to, to dwell, to tabernacle, as you said in John's letter. Tabernacle with us to die for us and then to rise again victorious. Father, we ask that our hearts would be stirred to what the true meaning of Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ, born in a manger, born in a cradle, going to the cross, dying for sin, cleansing us, washing us, and bringing us to a place that he has prepared. Father, help us as we continue to worship, to respond in faith to you in Jesus' name. Amen.